Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we are reading through the Bible in a year. We are on week 28, that's days 190 to 196, and we are reading 1 Chronicles 1 through 9 and Acts 11 through 15, verse 21. Unfortunately, we had some scheduling conflicts and sickness arise, so I am not joined this time by AJ and Matthew. Hopefully, we'll all be able to reconvene for the next episode to talk about the text together. But we still wanted to get an episode out for this week's Bible reading, so I will be going solo on this episode. You also might notice a little bit of difference in audio quality because I'm recording from home, and you might even hear the dog making some noise because I am joined today by our dog, Harper, though she obviously doesn't read the Bible or understand what's going on, but sometimes she does bark. Sometimes she makes noises, so we'll see if she ends up making an appearance on the podcast. But let's start by looking at our Old Testament reading from 1 Chronicles 1 through 9. Now, as you probably were able to tell, all nine chapters are genealogies. It's just name after name after name. And this might be a good text to listen to on an audio Bible instead of trying to pronounce all the names in your head or to read them out loud. It might be nice to have someone else do that professionally that you can listen to. So we've recommended some Bible reading apps, some audio apps in the past, the ESV app, the CSB app, Dwell Bible, All of those would be really great. Uh, But we're confronted with a number of genealogies, and you might also start to pick up on the fact that 1 Chronicles repeats a lot of the same events that are recorded in 1 Kings. And you might be wondering, why should we read through this book when we've already encountered many of these same events in 1 and 2 Kings? Why should we read through 1 Chronicles, especially when it starts out with nine chapters of genealogies? Well, I don't know that I can make a full argument for why you should read it other than it's the Bible, it's important, but I would want to point out that they don't record events in the same way. So the Kings and the Chronicles record of Israel's history include many of the same events, but they record them from a little bit of a different angle. So in a previous episode, I pointed out that... um, The Old Testament is historically divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And 1st and 2nd Kings are included in the prophets section, and Chronicles is included in the writings section. Well, often when we think of the prophets, we think of prophecy as in foretelling or predicting the future, when in reality, a lot of what the prophets are writing are not proclamations about the future, but they're actually critiques about the present way that Israel was living. So the record of Israel's history in the Kings, first and second Kings, which is included in the prophets, really functions as a critique of Israel's kings in the way they led the kingdom. So there we see a little bit of a harsher tone that is taken taking place. In Chronicles, some of the events in Kings are left out or they're supplemented or recorded from a slightly different perspective. 
And I think ultimately the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are intended to provide some measure of hope. They're intended to show that things aren't right, but that God is at work to set things right. So in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles, usually combined into one book, the Chronicles, appear as the final book of the Old Testament. And in that final line, there's this revelation that or instruction that the king of Persia receives that God wants him to build the temple. So it ends on a really, really hopeful and helpful note. Now, in our English Protestant Bibles, Kings and Chronicles are right next to each other. So it does feel a little bit more repetitive than if we were reading through the Hebrew Bible and we were saving Chronicles for the very last book. We'd read the rest of the prophets and the writings in between. But we have them back to back. I think it's still well worth reading through. And um, I think you'll discover that along the way. You'll, You'll notice several differences between the Kings and the Chronicles. But we are faced with this hard section that really restarts the whole history of the world with the genealogy starting with Adam. But it's, it is difficult to get through genealogies, especially when the names are hard to pronounce, when the value of these family histories is somewhat lost on us because we don't keep long family records like this. But I think at a minimum, we could understand the value of the genealogy as showing that God's promise to give Abraham many, many descendants to make nations from his line, that promise is being fulfilled here. It has been fulfilled and it's come true in the development of the nation of Israel. So God has worked to bring about his promises. So at a minimum, we should receive the genealogy as as a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. But also it really sets us up to enter into a particular phase of Israel's history. So we'll get into that phase in chapter 10 with Saul and his son and then the anointing of King David. But we really do need the whole genealogy beginning with Adam and leading up to Saul to get there. Now, you'll notice that in 1 Chronicles 1 through 8, there's a genealogy of Israel, essentially, with uh, the, the 12 sons of Jacob. But then in chapter 9, it shifts to a different listing of people. And these are individuals who had been exiled to Babylon, but were able to return after Cyrus gave this decree. So we really have some time shifts within the book. Uh, So we get to Israel's genealogy in chapter 8. We get to individuals who return from the exile in chapter 9. And then we have a recapitulation of Saul's genealogy at the end of chapter 9 that starts us off on a history of events during the life of Israel. And then by the end of 1 Chronicles, we get all the way back to the exile and a brief statement about the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple. So you kind of have to keep the timeline straight as you're reading Chronicles or else it's going to get really, really confusing. So to reiterate, 
1 Chronicles 1 through 8 is the genealogy of Israel, and we get the full nation of Israel described. And then 1 Chronicles 9 is a listing of individuals who returned from the exile. But at verse 35 in chapter 9, it, it's like it copies and pastes the last bit of Benjamin's genealogy, beginning with Saul's family, to introduce the death of Saul and his sons in chapter 10. So some tough slogging through the first section of First Chronicles, but it will get a little bit easier as we get into chapter 10 and following and get into a more standard historical telling of the events of Israel. Now, all along the way, though, you should keep an eye out for the fact that there are uh, ethical judgments that are made still, even though this isn't part of the prophets. There's still a little bit of a critique on the way that Israel's kings led and ruled, but there are also ethical or moral lessons that are drawn out throughout the rest of the history of Israel. So we want to read not just to grab onto the fact that these historical events happened, we also want to see the theological and ethical teachings that are being communicated through the record of these events. All right, let's turn our attention to the New Testament text, starting in Acts 11. As we've been reading through the history of Israel in Kings and Chronicles, we're really reading through the history of the early church in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. So in chapter 11, we encounter Peter defending Gentile salvation. So the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, but the circumcision party, as they're called in 11.2, began to criticize Peter for going to uncircumcised men and eating with them, but Peter is going to defend that action And he's going to conclude that these individuals came to faith in the Lord and the Holy Spirit came down on them, these Gentiles, just as it did on the Jews at the beginning. So he concludes in verse 17, if then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? So these individuals heard this, they became silent and they glorified God because he gave repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Obviously, this issue of Jews and Gentiles is one that's a little bit foreign to us because we're not engaging with uh, the the Jewish practices of Torah keeping. And we aren't going through a period of transition as those who worship God and were obedient to the Torah and followed the food laws and and circumcision and all the rest came to see that in Jesus, a new covenant was being ushered in. And in that new covenant, both Jews and Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God without these prerequisites of circumcision or without the burden of law keeping. So these issues are going to be really important for the early church. It's going to cause division. They're going to have to figure out how do we read our scriptures in light of Jesus in the giving of the Holy Spirit in this movement into the new covenant. What does that look like for Jews and Gentiles now to be united as the people of God? 
Well, that issue is going to surface over and over again in the book of Acts. Uh, But as people come to faith, Jews and Gentiles, they're identified as Christians. They're of the party of Christ. And I think um, that's a good way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. So we've already read about the circumcision party, uh, this division between religion and politics and all the rest was a lot less pronounced in those days and at, at that time. So I, you know, when, when we talk about being a Christian, we're talking about having a whole of life identity that's all encompassing. And there really isn't a division between um, aspects of a person's life in in the way that we might want to divide it. So in, in our modern day, we like to compartmentalize things and separate uh, identities. And that just doesn't work as well, according to the worldview of the ancients. So this party of Christ, everything about them has been radically transformed to look at Jesus as their leader. And if you remember the way that the apostles talk about the message of the gospel, often it's framed in terms of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, So this is being proclaimed in a setting where there are multiple kingdoms at play. So you have King Herod, who is ruling over Israel in a way, but he's a vassal ruler under the emperor of Rome. So you have different kingdoms that are um, functioning simultaneously. And now we're encountering King Jesus, who has a kingdom that is not from this world, but has implications for those in the world. And that's what the disciples are taking on as they're accepting the gospel. They're following after King Jesus. Now, we come to understand as we read the book of Acts that one of the consistent messages of the apostles was that people not only need to receive Jesus, they not, not only do they need to believe in him, they need to continue in what they have received. So, for example, in Acts eleven twenty three, um, there's an encouragement to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And over and over again in our reading for this week, we'll notice that a primary mission of the apostles and the elders is to encourage people to maintain the faith, to continue in their discipleship. Another important aspect of life in the whole the early church, life as a Christian, is caring for one another. So in Acts 11, Agabus prophesies that there will be a famine in the Roman world, and the church responds. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to brothers and sisters in Christ who lived in areas affected by the famine, and they did it in an organized way. They sent it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So early on, you see Christians cooperating outside of geographic boundaries to care for one another and to spread the gospel. This is an important idea for us to think about what our role as a church is, what we should be doing to care for brothers and sisters in Christ who are in areas affected by disaster, by famine. Um, we, We have a responsibility to Christians that extends beyond just our local church or our area to Christians across the world. We also have a responsibility to spread the gospel beyond our area alone, and we see that responsibility picked up and carried on uh, by 
Paul and Barnabas and others in the early church. They were sent out by the church for this ministry. Now, as we get to Acts chapter 12, King Herod executed James, John's brother. So this is not James, the brother of Jesus. It's the disciple James. He's executed. And because Herod saw that the Jews liked this, he arrested Peter too. And the church was praying fervently that God would release Peter. And this, in fact, happened, even though initially no one believed it, even though Peter was standing right outside the gate. But eventually they... um, believe, they see him, he comes in and he tells them about his miraculous release from prison. He then instructs the disciples to tell these things to James and the brothers. That's in verse 17. That is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, John's brother, who was just executed by King Herod. So sometimes it gets confusing when there are multiple Jameses going on, but the James that Peter is um, talking about here is the brother of Jesus. He's the author of the epistle of James, and really he's a leader in the early church at Jerusalem, as we'll see later on. At the end of chapter 12, we have this really interesting account of Herod's death. Herod gave a speech, and the assembly people responded to it by essentially worshiping Herod, saying that he had the voice of God and not of a man. And at once the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. So keep this in mind because there will be a situation later where there are individuals calling someone a God, and we'll see how they respond. But we get into chapter 13, and once again, we see people spreading the gospel. We see people praying and fasting in this early church, proclaiming the word of God. And throughout the ministry of the early church, this proclamation often happened in Jewish synagogues. It's probably important for us to recognize that as Christianity was becoming established, it really grew out of Judaism. It was growing out of Israel's scriptures. Jesus was a Jew. He was teaching in the synagogues. So this was a natural place for the early church to be teaching. In fact, later on, we'll see that someone could still be a Pharisee and be a Christian at the same time. Now, over time, that would no longer be the case as um, the Christian faith developed, as the church grew, as distinctions between Judaism and Christianity were made a lot more clear and plain. But very initially, the spread of the gospel took place in synagogues, these places where Jews gathered to worship, to hear the scriptures taught, to pray, to fast together. While Paul went to a synagogue on the Sabbath day, he was reading from the law and the prophets and is essentially teaching Jews the gospel through the law and the prophets. And again, this is important for us to recognize that the gospel is not disconnected from Israel's story. It's not disconnected from the law and the prophets. And then starting in verse 16 of chapter 13, we hear what amounts to a sermon by Paul, which is an interpretation and explanation of the law and the prophets that culminates in the good news of Jesus Christ. I think it's significant that in verse 32, Paul explained that the good news of the promise that was made to their ancestors, 
primarily to Abraham and to the Israelites, was fulfilled by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promises made to Abraham and the Israelites were fulfilled. Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of the promises. And through Jesus, the risen Christ, forgiveness of sins is brought to people. Paul proclaims in verse 39 of chapter 13 that everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. He warns them against ignoring this message or scoffing it and encourages them to receive this message. And then as many came to faith, he and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. So again, that consistent message of not just receiving the word of God, but continuing in it. But again, we see a repeated theme where Jews um, are unwilling to reinterpret their scriptures, um, or they become jealous of the sides of the crowds who are following Paul, and ultimately they contradict him, they insult him, uh, they persecute him and sent him away. But Paul and Barnabas replied that God's word needed to be spoken to them. And even though they're rejecting it, and and they say somewhat cynically that the Jews were judging themselves unworthy of eternal life, that they were going to turn to the Gentiles because in this message of the gospel, both Jew and Gentile are going to be brought together as the unified people of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's probably, especially in our day, important to note that when we talk about the Jews rejecting this message of the gospel, not every Jew rejected this message. Ultimately, uh, many Jews received the message and were added to the church. That's why there was a thriving church in Jerusalem. But uh, sometimes we talk about the Jews shorthand for certain rulers of the Jews or certain sects of the Jews. Um, It's not as if every Jew rejected God, just as it's not that every Gentile accepted this message of the gospel. Well, we get into verse 14, or chapter 14, and in verse 1, as Paul and Barnabas are speaking in the Jewish synagogue as usual, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Unfortunately, though, these believers, those who heard this message and believed it to be true, were stirred up by unbelieving Jews, and uh, their minds were poisoned, as said, and they turned from believing, really, to persecuting, to denying the faith, to being divided over this. So once again, the importance not only of believing, but maintaining belief, continuing in the faith, is emphasized here again. Now, I mentioned earlier that when Herod was referred to as a god because his speech was so eloquent and he failed to give God the glory for this and he was struck down that there were were other individuals who would be mistaken for gods. And that takes place in chapter 14, starting in verse 8, where Paul and Barnabas are in a town called Lystra and uh, they're preaching. Paul in particular is the main speaker. He's uh, preaching the message of the gospel and people say that the gods have come down to us in human forms. They called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. Um, And Paul and Barnabas respond by saying, no, we are just people. We are just like you. And we're telling you the good news of the living God. 
and, and they were barely able to stop the crowds from sacrificing to them, but they gave glory to God. And in fact, they went beyond simply giving glory to God. They continued to press the message of the reality of the God of Israel scripture as the one true creator saving God. Now, they make the point that even though God dealt with Israel in particular for a long time, and even though he allowed the nations to go their way, he did not leave himself without a witness. And uh, we sometimes refer to these things as natural theology or the witness of creation or something like that. But notice the things that God leaves to all people is a witness of his Godhead, of his deity, of his goodness. Things like rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling you with food, filling their hearts with joy. I I often think about things like nature as proclaiming the glory of God, but rarely do I think about the very existence of joy that we experience as a witness to the existence of God. But even the joy that unbelievers experience in individuals who have never received or read the Bible, even the joy that they experience points them towards the transcendent reality of the God who is the source of all joy. Um, I think C.S. Lewis is very good about identifying these things or, or other authors who, who talk about joy as something that can ultimately only be found by God alone. And as a result, Christians should be the most joyful of all people because we know where to attribute this that joy source to. We, we, we know who the source of our joy is, is what I'm saying. So as we find joy in the things of earth, we know that the joy isn't inherent in those things, but it comes as we understand those things to be a gift of God. And even as we experience it, it points us away from the thing itself to, to the author of the thing, the giver of the thing, to the God who creates and redeems. Now, um, it's interesting to me that when these individuals here, Paul and Barnabas, when they see this man who was healed, they identify them as gods. But then some Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, and they won over the crowds. And these crowds that were in one moment about to sacrifice to them as if they were gods, now they're stoning them. So they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. But almost miraculously, Paul gets up and he continues on in his proclamation of the gospel. Now, as he's going town to town, um, once again, they emphasize the, the need to strengthen the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. There's this need for us to continue in the faith despite hardship. They say in verse 22 that it's necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That is to say, those who are disciples of Jesus, those who are following the leadership of King Jesus and who have received his message, there's a sense in which we're already in the kingdom of God. But to be a kingdom citizen, to enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God will require going through many hardships. Now, this isn't a message that is received well in our world or really at any time in history uh, because we like cushy, comfortable things. Well, the life of faithful perseverance in the faith requires that we'll go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
we turn then to chapter 15, where we uh, come across a dispute between Jews and Gentiles, and really Jews and some other Jews as well. So there are some who began to teach Christians that unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas are engaging in serious argument and debate with them. Things come to a head. Uh, So they're appointed to go up to Jerusalem to present the matter before the Jerusalem council. The apostles and the elders are going to consider the matter and issue a ruling. So they hear testimony from Peter. They hear testimony from Paul and Barnabas and James, the brother of Jesus, now a key figure at the Church of Jerusalem, gives an initial response based on the evidence, essentially concluding that they shouldn't cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Instead, they should just give them the bare basics of a life of purity and obedience to God as the requirements for inclusion in the church, so to speak. So they write a letter. This will take place in our reading next week. But essentially, they just say, hey, you need to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. The reason that they're giving this judgment is because ever since ancient times, the law of Moses has been read in every city on every Sabbath day in the synagogues. So the rationale is this. There are Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. They're going to the synagogue and they're hearing Israel's scriptures taught. And there's confusion about what they need to put into practice in their lives to live in faithfulness to God. So they're hearing the whole of the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses, And they're going to ask, well, if we're following God, if we're following Jesus Christ, what do we need to comply with um, related to this law of Israel? And, And really, there's not that much that the early church judges they need to comply with. And that's helpful for us as we read the Old Testament as well. We might have questions as we read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about what we need to actually obey. So whether it's questions about circumcision or tattoos or boiling a a goat in its mother's milk. Well, when we're wondering what do we need to obey in these commands, what do we need to put in practice, I think we can turn to this judgment by the early church as a good starting point. Now, there may be other things to consider. We'll, we'll think about covenantal context. We'll think about uh, the way that Christ interpreted the law. We'll think about um, what, what leads to loving God and loving others. But ultimately, this is a good beginning guide for understanding what we ought to put into practice Um, in direct obedience to the law of Moses. So they decide to write a letter to the Gentile believers where they express essentially this, and they conclude in verse 29 that you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Now, it's a little bit of a question mark of how far-reaching this letter was. Where did it go? Who all was aware of it? Certainly Paul and Barnabas were aware of it because they were at that council. They gave testimony at that council. 
So then when we turn to texts like 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where Paul is dealing with the issue of eating meat sacrificed in a temple, I, I think that this counsel comes into play in the instructions and guidance that he gives, even though he doesn't reference it or quote it directly. So this this ruling is going to have influence on um, later apostolic teaching. It's going to have influence on the way that the church functions and operates. And it's good for us to think about these things as we read the Old Testament. And hopefully we'll have the same response as those who received it that's recorded in 1531. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And I want to encourage you as you continue to read through the Bible with us in the year, or even if you're not, even if you're just tuning into the podcast and listening to us talk about the text of Scripture, just want to encourage you to keep reading and thinking about the Word of God and to continue in it, to put it into practice in your life, to pursue obedience to the word of the Lord. As you do so, you may have questions about what it looks like to put the word of God into practice in your life. You may have questions about the Bible, about theology, and we'd encourage you to submit those questions to us through our church website at resurrectionmn.org slash podcast, where you'll find a link to submit questions. You can do so anonymously, and uh, we hope to be able to answer some of your questions, to be able to encourage you in the faith. Of course, we don't have the answer to every question. We don't know how to interpret every text of scripture. We aren't able to articulate every point of systematic theology and doctrine, but we would like to be a help wherever we can. So we'd encourage you, if you have questions, submit them through that link, and we would be happy to talk about them on the church podcast as a way to start a conversation, as a way to uh, provide another avenue of help to encourage you in faithful Christian living before the Lord. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can learn more about our church at our website, www.resurrectionmn.org.